I guess I'd invite you to um, to take a relaxed posture. Um, if you've um, if you've hidden a um, you know cup of tea or coffee um, somewhere out of the frame, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I you know invite you to take a slug. Um, Tragically, I did not bring a coffee, but maybe next time I'll do that. But uh, in any case, so I, I guess before we launch into what I was gonna talk about since they're, they're related, I thought I'd ask whether anyone has any questions about the sitting we just did and um, what their experience was, um, whether there was anything about the instructions that were um, perplexing or um, that I explained badly or any of that. Any any questions or comments on what we just did before we move on? Go ahead. Yeah. Just just a quick thought. Um, yeah. You said you said in there, and it really uh, struck me. Um, always be taking this posture. And I thought that was such an interesting way to phrase it because, you know, oftentimes we take a posture and that's it, we have taken it. And then maybe you hold the posture and that's great, but that's different than taking that posture for the first time. And the idea of always be in this state of taking the posture perpetually moment after moment, you take the posture then you take the posture and take the posture is uh, a cool way of thinking about it. And feels like very beginner's mind uh, right. approach. I, I thought exactly. that was cool. Uh, oh, thank you. I mean, I would say this, right? If my experience with that is, if you can, if you can find yourself in the mode of continually taking the posture um, for an entire period of zazen, then it has a tremendous effect on the on the level of kind of comfort and and liveliness and energy that you can bring to sitting which is really nuts right it it uh it, it really helps a lot because my experience with with sitting is that when when you when when things start to become uncomfortable is often when you've taken the posture and then you've held it for a while and your body starts going I'm sick of holding this posture. Right? <laughs> so it, so it, uh, it kind of, it's, it's both functional and, 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 and yeah, a good way of kind of refreshing the mental engagement. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. It, it kind of works. Risa, did you have a question or? I just wanted to say, hi, Zachary, you look vibrant. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hi, Reese. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, here's what here's what I was going to um, what I was going to talk about. So, you know, Buddhism is, among other things, um, a philosophy, right? And and it's and you know a <laughs> Among the other things that 
it is also besides a philosophy is that it's a it's a well it's what alan watts called a, a way of liberation right it's a soteriological practice right it's a um a practice that it's intended to lead to freedom right and it's also a um a kind uh it's also a devotional practice in the in the sense that in a kind of the universal sense of devotional practice right so it's all of those things it's, and so you know to the extent that it's a devotional practice you could argue it's also a religion right but but a lot of the aspects of of zen are essentially philosophical right and there's a there's a um, there's a little bit of wrangling if you read the massive Zen literature. I mean, this is this is just one of the you know many massive books that you that if you were to say find me the Zen literature and somebody were to stack them up, they'd keep stacking, right? But um, if you if you dig around in it, there's a lot of dispute about whether um, whether people are really comfortable with the philosophical aspects of, of Zen right? and Buddhism in general, but but um, and you know we'll see why in a bit. But here's what I'd say: so you know, fundamentally, Zen is a Buddhist school, right? And the the Buddhism arose out of a period in which there was a tremendous amount of philosophical and intellectual ferment in the world, and people were were, were really kind of working their asses off to cook up a new way of thinking about things. Um, uh, and and this doesn't just apply to to northern India or what is now northern India, which is where all where the Buddha lived. It applied all over the world, you know, um, East Asia, in particular China, right? Um, uh, both North and South India, uh, all across the the kind of great expanse in between there and 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 uh, you know the Eastern Mediterranean, the Aegean, uh, uh, you know, the Middle East, and so on. There was just not everywhere, but in a lot of places. That, that were they were kind of civilized and been stable for a while there was this ferment people were cooking up new ways of thinking about things the pre-socratic philosophers um the you know Taoism and confucianism in in asia the in in india not just buddhism but the but jainism and the um the the yoga schools the um Patanjali and and so on, right? All of that stuff, it it's not exactly happening at the same time, but there's this sense that that there was a there was this ferment going on, and one of the primary objects of study of that ferment was this proposition that people are kind of awful, right? <laughs> they 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 caused themselves and each other tremendous wads of suffering 
and they kind of make a mess of things and 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 um you know are just a difficult proposition and underlying that proposition and the study that went along with it, it was this idea that there's probably a solution in some way it could be better right and there first of all there's an explanation and then there's a solution right and and um people have known this for a really long time and the the a lot of the earlier solutions that that were cooked up had to do with um managing everyone's relationship with with natural forces and with each other using um various kinds of ritual practices and so on and and people were still doing that and in fact you know and they continued they've continued to do it ever since right but um but there was there was this notion i think that more explanation and maybe a more comprehensive solution was you know was needed right and so and buddhism is one of the one of the explanations and solutions that arose out of that era and it has a particular flavor and the the flavor is this right um, essentially people are awful in this way and suffer in this way because and this is the this is the really remarkable part because of how we're put together as psychological entities as as you know thinking beings right and as um social beings right we're you know we're there the the unique gifts that we bring to our everyday life the you know speech planning you know rich sociality etc cetera, etc cetera, are are also the source of our distress in, in addition to being the source of our um of a lot of kind of great things about what it is to be human they're the source of our distress and um that i'm sure was a bracing um proposition for people because i think i think people weren't used to thinking about it that way at that point um i think now that those that idea is part of the everyday intellectual and cultural fabric but at the time it was not right um and then the solution was was also was also interesting and bracing it was yes we're built like this but we have this at least this kind of shred of of agency and choice and that, and we can choose a path um that will deliver us from this kind of suffering right um and and the 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 path was sort of spelled out as a collection of bullet points right so um and it can either be read as a sequential path or as a as some kind of um 
set of features of the um, of exemplary behavior that will deliver you from suffering, right? So, um, you know, to uh, to shift your views so that they um, they see things more as they are and are less self self deluding and deceiving, right? To to form an intention to live better, right? Um, to uh, as a, as, a, as a result of that intention to behave well, to not do work that's um, destructive, unhelpful, to, to speak kindly and skillfully, to um, act in a way that um, is helpful and constructive and not um, violent and destructive, right? to um to 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 make the right kind of effort right to 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 engage in concentration and and meditation that's um helpful and not self-deluding and to to you know gather in the process gather wisdom right yeah okay so something like that um, and then, so that's, that's, that's the, those are the foundations of Buddhism, right? And then, you know, the, after the life of the Buddha, a number of things happened, but mainly what happened was that, that first of all, for a long time, um, Nobody wrote down anything about what the Buddhist actually said in his life. And then people started writing stuff down, right? And, and you know, increasingly that, that stuff started to sound kind of philosophical in nature, um, the stuff that people were writing down. And then people would comment on it and, and write more stuff. And after a while, you, the Buddhism was kind of, in some ways kind of an academic exercise there were there were buddhist universities you know for lack of a better word and maybe that's the perfect word right and where people would study and debate and and write write commentaries and papers and so on and so forth and uh, about um what everyone thought at least as far as they could tell was the stuff that the buddha said right and over time that the these Buddhist school they you know, grew up to grew to be a bunch of you know sort of in the in the in the tens you know uh, 10 20 30 something Buddhist uh, sort of well attested Buddhist schools uh, of which a couple were very popular and and they had they had a they had a set of ideas about the world that were were actually quite sophisticated the world and the self and, and so on and and some people were convinced that that they really understood deeply the 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 structure and nature of human subjectivity and and how we ought to behave in order to live live well with our with that particular structure, right? And then other people had this completely different idea that um, actually 
none of that stuff was real. It was all just, we're, we're essentially living in a simulation, right? Um, or yeah, kind of simulation. We, we totally made all of it up, right? Out of, out of raw sensory data that had no, that, that didn't have any actual rhyme or reason to it. We're just cooking it up, right? Um, and out of, out of that debate grew essentially Mahayana Buddhism, right? Which so, and, and Zen, the Zen school is also a Mahayana Buddhist school, right? And the, in, in the Mahayana, which arose among, among other things around the time when Buddha was moving out into East Asia, particularly China, and there's, there's some question, in fact, about whether a lot of the um, seminal Mahayana documents were actually originally written in Chinese and not, not in Pali or Sanskrit at all, right? Um, but that's an academic um, debate. Um, some people think yes, some people think no. But in any case, the the emphasis in Mahayana Buddhism was a little bit different. In, the, in, in original Buddhism, following the path meant that you actually completely dropped the world, right? You, you'd check out, you'd kind of um, become a mendicant renunciate, right? And you would spend your life um, uh, walking, begging, and teaching. That was what you did, basically, um, and practicing, right? Um, and and the and the the soteriology, the the goal of liberation was you would you would modify your karma and modify your karma and modify your karma through practice and exemplary behavior until finally it was so it was so clean that you would just be dissolved into the um into the universe when you died because there would be no reason for you to be reborn ever again right and that was that was kind of the original idea and, and there's some complicated reasons for why Buddhists thought that that whole idea of rebirth and karma and so on was a kind of current philosophical idea at the time that Buddhism picked up, right? Um, it, uh, and anyway, um, Mahayana Buddhism subtly de-emphasized that whole the the whole thing of renunciation, right? Um, there's this, there's a famous, the, the most, not, well, one of the seminal, let's put it that way, one of the seminal Mahayana documents, particularly in terms of Buddhism moving to China is this sutra about this guy who's kind of a regular guy who also happens to be a, a, a incredibly skillful Buddhist teacher and practitioner, right? And... But he, you know, like he's he's kind of an entrepreneur and businessman and family man and so on and so forth, and so it doesn't have to be a a renunciate, right? And and in the place of the idealized human of early Buddhism, who's called an arhat or an arhat, um, who had this, who took this 
path of renunciation to its you know ultimate um, goal, right? The the in Mahayana Buddhism the um, the emphasis was on a, a slightly different kind of being called a bodhisattva, right? And a, a bodhisattva was someone who had had taken the following vow, and the vow goes like this. And and let's be clear. When you get ordained in the in the modern Zen school, you take this vow, and in fact, you you take it pretty much daily. Right? Um, and it goes like this: There's infinitely many beings, and I'm gonna save them all. Right? And th there's delusions are endless, and I'm gonna end them. Right? And um, the the presentation of of the of the Dharma, of the truth of existence is in both immeasurably vast and immeasurably tiny. And I'm going to realize all of it. <laughs> and, and, and the, the Buddha way that becoming a Buddha is impossible and I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> so, so basically it's this, you set yourself up for this impossible task. Right. And, um, and you you dedicate your entire life to executing that impossible task, um, which I have to say sounds pretty ambitious, right? Um, and and in particular the the whole the whole idea of everybody be, becoming a Buddha was considered in some circles kind of heretical, right? So there's a lot of fighting about that. But in any case, that's kind of the that's that's kind of the the Mahayana background for, for, for Zen. And then Zen arose in, you know, it kind of became itself in Tang Dynasty China. And as a result, it, it aligned itself with the other philosophical systems that were present at the time in Tang Dynasty China, which include legalism, Confucianism, and Taoism, right? And in particular, it in in place of the path. I mean, I've already I actually gave a talk about this a few years talks ago, so I won't go into it too in too much detail. But in in, in not exactly instead of, but kind of in addition to the path, they kind of adopted this idea of the way, right? And so the way is in Taoism, it's kind of like a continuous mode of behavior. It's a continuous practice, right? Um, and, and so there was this notion in Tang Dynasty Zen of a, of a continuous skillful practice that led to exemplary behavior and, and liberation in the moment now, right? Um, and, and if you, you know, again, if you look at all these, at the stacked up Zen literature, it's almost all um, stories about people behaving that way. Right. That's what it's about. It's like, here's some examples. Here's 500 examples of people behaving in this way. Um, that's, 
that's considered liberatory and exemplary, right? Um, and then some people, some of the koans are about people that kind of miss the boat, right? but they're not that many. Actually, it's most of, mostly it's people that you know hit the nail on the head or something like that. And you know, the the metaphorical language around it is kind of endless, right? But anyway, so th that in some ways is the philosophical heritage of of Zen, right? So early Buddhism, the Eightfold Path, Renunciation, the Mahayana, um, a de-emphasis on, on ascetic, on, you know, on, yeah, on asceticism and, and withdrawal from the world and, and an emphasis on, on, on conduct. And also a bunch of ideas about how, um, all of the categories and conceptual objects that we construct to, to philosophize about Buddhism are provisionally helpful, but utterly, but in the end, um, ultimately without essence or meaning, right? Um, and then this confluence of, of Chinese philosophy and and Buddhism as it was in, inherited from South Asia, right? And that's that's where you end up. And the interesting thing about it is that it kind of produces this bind. And this is the this is the thing that I that I wanted to talk about most. And there's a koan that goes along with it, which I will um, I'll also see if I can remember, but. Right from the beginning, there's a lot of things that you could talk about striving for, right? Um, the the pursuit of the noble eightfold path, right? Or the um, the the vow to become a Buddha, right? The 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 vow to um, free all beings from suffering, right? Um, the, the, and, and Zen is also, the word Zen means, um, is a, is a Japanese cognate for a Chinese cognate for a Sanskrit word, jhana, and Pali word, jhana, that, that essentially means, um, concentration or meditation in particular refers in, in the, in the, um, in original Buddhism or, or shortly after original Buddhism became a sort of technical term of art. There were a bunch of different concentrated states that you could progress through that, that denoted kind of advanced levels or it's increasingly advanced levels of practice, right? Um, so, so in addition, Zen attached itself to this idea of concentrated practice and, and, you know, meditation, Zazen is a, is a thing that you can dedicate yourself to. And there's a lot of, you know, descriptions of how to do it. And we, you know, we just went through one of them, um, uh, you know half an hour ago or something like that right that um that that sound like prescriptions to pursue in order to 
to achieve a goal, to achieve these things that we're talking about, the, the path, the, you know, wisdom, the freedom from suffering, the freedom from suffering for all beings, you know, increasingly ambitious goals, right? Um, so, so it's, pre it's presented almost universally as kind of an aspirational proposition of Buddhism, right? And, and at the same time, um, the Mahayana says all of these ideas are kind of empty and actually there's nothing to strive for, right? And if you look at it from a, from a practical standpoint, um, you know, this, this is what we were talking about um, while we are sitting, right? If you're if you're sitting there going, I'm not doing this right. <laughs> um, that's probably not actually helping. <laughs> it, it, it just means that that um, that practice is a struggle rather than a practice, and and it was not intended to be a struggle. In fact, um, struggle is is the is the near enemy of um, of diligence, right? Um, so, so that's the bind, right? And um, the con that goes along with that bind is this. What time is it now? Yeah. Um, Matsu was a very famous Zen master, but when he was studying with his teacher, who was this guy, Nanyue, um, One day, Nanyue came to see him and he says, hey, what you doing? And he goes, I've been sitting Zazen like a, you know, like a house of fire here. And, uh, um, and Nanyue says, why are you doing that? And, and Matsu says, because I want to become a Buddha, you know, which is essentially the vow that he took when he became a priest, right? Um, and, and Nanyue goes, oh, okay. And he, he looks around and he sees a tile fragment on the ground and he picks it up and he gets his robe. And he's like, um, you know, like, and, um, and <laughs> Matsu not surprisingly says, teacher, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, um, I'm polishing this tile. Um, and, and Matsu says, why are you doing that? And he says, so it can become a mirror, right? And, um, and Matsu says, how can you turn a tile into a mirror by polishing it like that? And, and, and Nanyue says, aha, how can you become a Buddha by sitting like that? <laughs> and, uh, and so that's the story, right? Um, the, and the the way the you know it's been that way ever since right the 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 bind that you come up against in in practice is exactly this um this conflict between aspiration and nobody honestly would do this stuff if they weren't aspiring right and um and the the requirement that Zazen is really just 
facing the actual arising of life and the truth of the actual arising of life in this moment without judgment or struggle, right? And, and when you can do that, then it's transformative. And when it, when it becomes struggle, then it's not so transformative. Um, and it can be really, really difficult, actually, right? So I guess the, the only thing I'd like to say in addition is the, the capacity to do that grows on you, but it's mainly a matter of being willing to bring yourself to that point of choice, right? The, 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 like, like the Buddha said way back at the beginning of this talk, we have this shred, this sort of liminal, limited, but nonetheless invaluable choice about how to meet the self in the world. And to, to bring that choice up and to say, I'm not, I'm, just going to let go of whatever it is that I'm struggling with. And I'm just going to be here in the middle of this life. And you say that over and over and over again. And after a while, it sticks, right? And, and the choice presents itself, not only when you're sitting, but when you're standing and lying down and walking around and, you know, buying yogurt at Trader Joe's, right? Um, so anyway, that's the request of practice. That's the continuous practice of keeping yourself awake. And that's how you kind of slowly transform your life. So does anybody have any questions about that or um, comments, et cetera? Et cetera?